love riding my bike. I love running. I don't care what they think about it. I love it. At that point, when I knew I was going to win, chills just went up and down my entire body. I don't believe there are any good or bad foods. Food is food. I still feel so passionate about getting that record that I'm like, I'm just going to do it. As an athlete, I was like, what's my story or what's your story? What can you learn from it? And what can you teach people? Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. I am your co-host, Haley Chura. I'm joined by Alyssa Gadeski, who is in classic 2021 fashion, I believe, now figuring out a plan beat because the Myrtle Beach Marathon, the race that she was training for happening in March, has been postponed. Alyssa, how are you feeling about the postponement <sighs> of your, your race? Womp womp. Haley, it was so sad. It was like you know, you know, it's coming and you don't want it to happen. And you see the email and it's just like, this is it. This is the one that I thought I didn't want to read, you know. And so they did. They postponed the race to early May. Um, and so that was disappointing because, you know, I'm hoping that um, I'm more looking to triathlon season by then. So I'm not necessarily sure that that early May date would work for me for a full marathon. I also am not really in the business of extending my uh, marathon training for another eight weeks because it's like that the fuse I have of energy to last that long would be would be gone. But maybe the half, you know, so I don't know what's going to happen. They I entered part of me choosing Myrtle Beach Marathon in the first place was because they had a really good deferral policy, right? So you could um, transfer to next year. You could just take the postponement date. You could, or you get race credit for um, any of the races that that event company puts on. And they put on quite a few kind of on the East Coast. And so I liked that, you know, I then I, I figured the race credit, it never expires. At some point or another, I'll do like a race. And so um, that's kind of my, my, my plan, I think is what I'm going with, but I haven't really picked a decision one way or another, but that news came in and Haley, luckily for me, it came in on Tuesday, I think like right after we recorded last week, I was like, whoops, it's, you know, <laughs> of course they couldn't give us the breaking news for the episode this week, but, um, it was in time. It had to have been Tuesday because it was in time for me to do a crash taper for the race that was happening, which was the adventure race, um, the chill, the nine hour adventure race here in Virginia that was taking place that I was participating in. And so my plan Haley had been to like marathon train and just kind of like do the adventure race tired. And I'm really glad I didn't have to do that because it would have been much harder than it already was for me. But so I got to do a three day like crash taper for the adventure race then. And that was you know, that was like a nice treat. That was a bonus I didn't really see happening. So I embraced that wholeheartedly and found I made that my silver lining, I guess, of the, the Myrtle Beach Marathon cancellation. So first, I, I love that when we sign up for races these days, we choose our races based on their deferral policy, because I don't think you're alone in that. And I love that you did find, you know, kind of put a positive spin on this. You got a little extra rest. You went into your nine hour adventure race, like, you know, ready to go or as, as ready as you can be for a nine hour adventure race. I think those are kind of, those are the like definitely pandemic style races where it's like, let's see what happens. And hopefully I prepared, <laughs> but how did it go? 
Um, it was good. So, you know, spoiler alert, it ended up being a great day. We had a lot of fun. I was a team with my boyfriend, Matt. And it's, I think, you know, I kind of joke to people that Matt and I had already done adventure races together because we've been through racing for fastest known times on each other's teams for that. And so I was like, it can't be like too much worse than like, or harder, or like more intense or any of those things than kind of what we've been through there. So I felt confident about the team situation going into it at least. Um, but it was funny. We had the, one of the COVID precautions was like a staggered start. You picked a start interval over the span of like, you know, two hours, I think teams, groups of five teams or something were five to 10 teams were going off every 20 minutes between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. For whatever reason, we got it in our heads with like the day or two before that we were starting at 8.40 a.m. And the race was about an hour and 45 minutes away. So we, you know, wake up at 4 a.m. on Saturday, get everything, you know, drive down there in the darkness super early, get ready, we show up and you're allowed to get your maps and all of the like race rules and information 90 minutes before your start time. So we're there. We were a little bit nervous about timing, so we got there 30 minutes before that even, right? So we were there at 6.40, I guess-ish. And so finally 7.10 comes and we're like, okay, 90 minutes to go. Go get the map. So Matt goes in and he comes back empty-handed and I'm like, oh no, we're already doing something wrong. And I was like, what's wrong? And he's like, well, nothing is really wrong. I'm like, well, why don't we have the maps? He's like, oh, we have the wrong start time. Like we were, we're an hour early. So classic, like I wish we could blame daylight savings or something like that. But we, yeah, we were an hour early. So we had to wait until 8.10 to get our maps and everything. So um, we basically just like sat on our phones in the car for an hour, or at least the park that we were competing in had cell service, which I figure is like not a normal thing at some of these events. So we could waste time that way. And we just like kind of bided our time. And then they, they laughed at us a little bit, but at least we were just like overly eager. Um, Definitely better but, than, than the other way around than showing up and finding out that oh, like, yeah. you missed your start time or you only have like 10 minutes to look at the map and then they're like, ready, go. <laughs> We would have been in big trouble with the map situation because this was the maps were um, the maps were great. Like the maps themselves were great, but there was tricky things with this race. So you had to a lot of times when you get maps for these, like, I mean, any map super nerds out here will appreciate me going into all of this detail. But I find this stuff interesting. So typically, you know, in things that I had been doing with um, these orienteering events and stuff like that that I've seen, the maps are already adjusted for the magnetic declination or of the like, you know, north, northerly magnetic north versus true north. It's always like usually adjusted on the map already. But for these maps, we had to actually account for that. So that was one thing we had to kind of deal with when we were getting the maps. Another thing was that part of the challenge of this race was that we plotted our own points. So the map had maybe... I want to say like four or five before we even started, we had to come prepared to plot UTM points. And so they gave us like this special plotter tool you use and you had to know how you were doing it. So you're plotting the points that you're eventually going to have to go find. So you have to do it right. Right. So we had to do that. And then we had to make our route. So that took us a long time. So we used like the full, I mean, we basically had 
did one set of maps and then I was like, we don't even have time to do my set of maps. So we're basically just going to have the route and everything like important on Matt's set of maps, which is that was that would be like one of the mistakes I would say I've learned. I would say hopefully we get faster at that so that I can also complete my set of maps to make them help more helpful for the navigation situation. Um, but we had to do what we had time for, you know, and so then we rushed around and got ready for our start and it was like 18 degrees or something. It was like 20 between 18. I heard something. Someone said it was 18 degrees. Someone said it was 25 degrees, but it was cold in the morning. Haley, it was very cold to be starting a race. Um, and this was before the snow hit, right? Cause I know the East coast got hit by a lot of snow, but this was Saturday. So before the snow hit. Yeah. So had it been a day later, it would have been an entirely different race, but this was just cold, no snow on the ground. We had a lot of ice in places and things like that. Um, but you get to start either on foot or on the bike and we chose on foot, which actually helped kind of warm us up right from the start. Um, so that was good. And basically the, you know, the, um, the way it all unfolded was you, you kind of do like a orienteering section on foot and then, you we biked for so that took us about an hour then we biked and found checkpoints on the bike for about two hours and then another two hours on foot like orienteering and then another I don't even I'm forgetting to add up all the hours but then we had another chunk on the bike and then another chunk on foot to get us back to the start finish so um, all in all it was a nine hour race we Haley we did clear the course clearing the course means you get all of the like navigation points so that was a big thing. So we found all of those and we got back in just over seven and a half hours. So Whoa. we were excited about win? that. Um, no. So the way <laughs> um, these are scored is that um, you there's a lot of divisions because it's like all male three person teams, all male two person teams, single male, you know, and then it's like all female three person female, two person female, one person female. And then it's like co-ed teams, two people, three people. So there's a lot of divisions, but, um, we were second in the two person co-ed division. And I should have looked, we actually, we did do pretty well, especially for our first race. Um, in like, if you were to put everyone kind of against each other, um, I want to say there were like, um, there's a lot of teams. They haven't, put out all of the results. So I don't know how many teams, but I want to say only, I want to say at least 60 teams would be my guess. And I think like 12 to 15 of them probably cleared the course and got like all the points. And so the way it scored is like, as it's shaking out through the day, if you start to realize like you, or you can't find a point and you need to skip it, or like you just realize you don't have time to do it all, you can skip some of the optional checkpoints along the way. And then as it's scored, everyone in your division who like cleared the course is ranked by time. And then it kind of goes after that in order of who got what points. So it's a very like complex system. <laughs> I'm glad you're a math major, Alyssa. Cause I, like, I got a little bit lost in there, but congratulations. Congratulations to you and, <laughs> and Matt on. So, Oh, I'm on, wearing my, you can see this is my prize. Haley, my beanie. I got a nice little, it is a cute here. beanie. That is a really cute um, so beanie. So that was, yeah. And there was some other good swag. They gave like this cool like pint glass thing. So, I mean, I I don't think any of our regular listeners will be surprised to hear that I I enjoyed my first adventure race. I plan to be back. I was really excited. There were a lot of other first timers out there. I think we all had a good time. Um, so 
it was a good little teaser for Memorial Day weekend because Matt and I are just really taking the plunge and we're going from nine hours to 36 hours of racing oh, on Memorial wow. Day. So, um, yeah. So <laughs> out the whole day doing the nine hours, I was like, what are we going to do for 36 hours? This is going to be a really long time of racing. But um, so far, so good. And, you know, we still like each other after being on the team together. So that's good, too. That's great. Well, congratulations. Congrats on your hat. It seems very appropriate for the weather I see happening in your part of the country right now. So should be getting a lot of good use. But um, and yeah, maybe you piqued some interest in some adventure racing. It does sound I mean, these, this might be the kind of racing that is happening right now. So if people are itching for a race, adventure racing, check it out. Maybe. Definitely. So, you know, if people are if people are located in my area, the mid-Atlantic area, um, check out Adventure Addicts Racing. It was really well done. It felt safe. Um, and I know they have some other events. I don't think anything's coming up too quickly, but um, they definitely have. Maybe in March, I think they have some other stuff. So, um, yeah, check it out. It's pretty good stuff. But, Haley, we have a mailbag question that came in. Oh, and um, can I, for can our I before, listeners, we, you can, before we do that, can I add to a past mailbag question? Oh, sure. Well, I was going to say we had a couple weeks ago, someone wrote in asking about the PTO, the Professional Triathlete Organization. And right. and we were like unsure if you were a member or not. And so I actually went and asked, I was like, you know, how if someone is not ranked in the top 100 or if you're a new pro and you want to join the PTO, how do you join? Is there any cost? And I found out there is no cost. And how you join is you email Dylan McNeese and that email address is is dylan.mcneese at protriathletes.org. Dylan is spelled D-Y-L-A-N dot M-C-N-E-I-C-E. So dylan.mcneese at protriathletes.org. Email Dylan, tell him you want to join, and I think he will get you all set up. So Alyssa, if there's any more confusion or if anyone else wants to join the PTO, that's how you do it. That was really helpful. Haley, I did shoot Dylan an email and he got back to me with the, the rest of the instructions there. So we're rolling. I'm on it, people. So anyone else else out there too, definitely join us. But Haley, we do have a question for this week. And so as always, our listeners can write to us at ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions. This was a great question that came in, Haley. Came in from David. And David has a question and this first question is one that we are actually going to address in today's interview. So that's very special. But the question is about supporting, um, you know, further supporting women in sport and how he can help further equality for women in sport, what he can do for that. So that fit in really great with our interview we have coming up. So David, sit tight and listen for your answer there. But David also had a separate question just for me, which is what is my favorite trail in Virginia and why? And... Haley, I think I have two answers. So I think he's probably going for like a non, I want to say the Appalachian Trail because it is, I think anywhere you are, that trail is so cool because every time I'm running on it, I'm like, man, you could, I could run in this direction and then get to Maine. And then I'm like, I turn around, I'm like, I could run in this direction and just get to Georgia. Like that trail to me is just super cool. And in Virginia, there's a lot of neat little spots on it. Um, but Non-AT, a little bit more under the radar, I would say the Wild Oak Trail or the Twat 
loop um, as people around here call it. And it is about a marathon distance, I think 26 miles. People say it's longer, but it's only like 26. And a lot of elevation, some really, it's like pretty remote. You're not going to see a lot of people out there, but it's pretty runnable, but it's also got some good technical stuff. It's a great trail. I definitely think more people should check that out. So David, again, though, stay tuned. We are going to hit on that first question you have later in the interview. Alyssa, did you set the fastest known time on the Wild Oak Trail? Haley, I did have it until two and a half months ago, and then <laughs> it got taken from me. Um, but it actually, uh, it yeah, so it was broken. I think the Leah Yingling, I believe is her name, and she she was in town. She grew up around here, I think her story is. Anyway, she was coming to train and ran the trail. She got the women's time under five hours, which is actually super exciting for that loop. I think I was like 525 or something. Maybe. I don't know. I should have come prepared for that. But um, I ran it in the summer and it was quite hot. She ran it in the winter. Definitely different conditions. And I think that um, it can definitely go lower. I think her and I both agree. We chatted a little bit about it, that it can keep going down. So it's a fun trail for anyone looking for those FKT times too. Oh, that's cool. Records are meant to be broken and maybe, yeah, you'll get another shot at it. Um, maybe that's what you could use all this marathon fitness for. <laughs> go for that. F- go get that <laughs> FKT back. Considering how hard it was for me to be climbing any sort of hill this past weekend in the adventure race, I don't know if I'm suited for like doing thousands of feet of climbing in a race situation right now. Cause, uh, the Myrtle beach marathon was going to be I think it was like a grand total of 221 feet of elevation in that sucker. So um, I need to get some climbing legs back under me. But um, yeah, the, the, you know, fitness is fitness, I guess. We have one bit of housekeeping item or housekeeping before we get to our interview. And that is the feisty team. It is reopening this week. So if you are interested in joining the feisty team, it is $22 a month or $239 a year. And you get monthly feisty huddles and webinars with expert guests. You get big sponsor discounts, swag, and monthly prizes, challenges to stay motivated, and a community of feisty like-minded friends. So if you are interested in joining that, uh, watch the at feisty on Instagram account or head to livefeisty.com and you can find all the details, but um, it's only open at certain times. So don't miss it if you are interested. Okay, Haley, it's interview time. So we have a really great guest on today. We have Catherine Bertine. She built her professional cycling career as a three-time Caribbean champion, a six-time national champion of St. Kitts and Nevis, and a five-year veteran of the UCI World Tour teams. But off the bike... Catherine was a columnist for ESPN, a senior editor for ESPNW, and the author of four nonfiction books, as well as she created the award-winning documentary, Half the Road. In 2017, she founded and she currently serves as CEO for the Homestretch Foundation, a 501c3, which provides free housing to female professional athletes struggling with the gender pay gap. And you can go back into the Iron Women archives for our talk with Catherine about home stretch and half the road but we are really excited that we brought her back today to talk to us about her latest book stand that just came out this week our chat with Catherine is coming up next 
Alyssa, I know I go on and on about your fastest known times on 100 and 200 mile courses, but just last month you talked about running 35 second 200s on the track. That's sub five minute mile pace. How do you transition so well between super endurance and super speed training? Well, Haley, one of my top priorities is taking really good care of my body before, during, and after every run. This year, I started using Prevenex Joint Health Plus, and I've definitely felt a direct benefit to my training. The active ingredients in Joint Health Plus are clinically proven to reduce joint pain and stiffness. Less joint pain means faster run splits and better recovery for tomorrow's run. You don't have to run as far or as fast as Alyssa to benefit from Prevenex's Joint Health Plus. And in just seven to 10 days of using Joint Health Plus, you should notice a difference. If by chance you don't feel any benefits, Prevenix offers a 100% refund, no questions asked. Everyone wants to feel good when they swim, bike, run, or even walk. Alyssa and I both highly recommend you head to Prevenix.com and use the code IRONWOMEN15 and get 15% off your order. Again, that website is Prevenix, P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com and discount code IRONWOMEN15. We know many of you are working with limited pool time and schedules these days. Thanks, COVID. Is it over yet, Haley? No, I think we still have a ways to go, but we do recommend our listeners check out Form Swim Goggles. These goggles have a smart display so you can see the metrics you need in the moment. They even can show distance in open water swimming now. It's a great way to enhance your swim and maximize that limited time. Head to formswim.com to get your hands on these innovative goggles and make the most of the swim time you have. Hi, Catherine. Welcome back to the Iron Women podcast. Oh, it is so great to be back. Hello, ladies. Thanks for having me on. So we had you on. People can, it's probably easiest just to Google Catherine Bertine Iron Women podcast to get the episodes. But we definitely had you on season five, episode 35, which is crazy to even think we have progressed beyond that now once we start adding (laughs) the numbers, the tags. But um, definitely encourage listeners to go back in time a little bit, pull up that gem to get more of your background, Catherine. But today we want to focus on your latest book release. Congratulations. The book Ooh, is called Stand. And the byline of Stand is a memoir on activism, a manual for progress. And so I don't think many authors would describe their books as a cross-section of memoir and manual necessarily. So what can our readers expect in your words when they're reading Stand? That's a, that's a great question. And I guess I've never fit the typical mold, you know, when it comes to, well, I guess many things, but books too, I think that a lot of publishers weren't really sure, like, well, is it a memoir or a manual? You know, and I would say, well, it's both. And I'm not sure that they knew what to do with that. And what uh, what it means for me is the fact that if we step into the arena of creating change and, you know, standing on the front lines of change, it became a very um, poignant lesson to me that both your public life and your private life will become intertwined in such a mission. So for me, the the memoir part of the book had to be um, included in the structure of this book. You know, so if I'm going to talk about how we're going to affect change or create change, and that has kind of a manual style feel to it, I figured that 
they really needed to be combined to have any sort of impact. It can't be one or the other. It has to be both if you're going to be brutally honest about what really happens when we stand on the front lines of change. And you are brutally honest. And this is brutally honest about your own life. And that's the memoir part because you're very vulnerable in this book. And I think that when a lot of us think about activists or activism, we think of people with really thick skin, you know, people who are strong, brave fighters. We don't think about their vulnerability always. So was why was it important for you to kind of show your own vulnerability, even though I imagine that probably didn't feel super good? <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely, it's terrifying. It's nerve wracking to put your vulnerable story out there into the public. And I'm, you know, I'm no stranger to having done that, not only in some other writing, but just in the, in the quest for, you know, women's equality and speaking and standing up, you get a lot of trolls out there. And, you know, so I knew that if I'm going to, um, you know, walk that tightrope of vulnerability, that um, I leave myself open to a lot of, uh, you know, scary comments that are going to come in. But I also truly believe in my heart and soul that what really resonates with people and therefore with readers is having a little bit of insight to the fact that we're all very human. And if anybody feels um, connected to this journey because they can sense that I'm you know, very much a human being, and maybe there's part of my story that they can relate to just from the human side. I, I guess my gut knew that I had to take that chance if I were going to, uh, you know, to tell this full story. So um, I hope that somewhat answers the question as to the, the why part, you know, why involve both. But I can tell you right now, you know, um, we're recording this a week before the book comes out. And, you know, I'm still nervous. Very few people have read the full manuscript, really um, most of those people being my teammates, my, my team stand of, um, you know, the editors and the publicists and the graphic designers and you two, you know. So um, it, it's a very small number, but I've been fortunate enough to hear positive things that people are in some way connecting to that human vulnerable element. So I can only cross my fingers and uh, hope for the best and be terrified in the meantime. <laughs> was it hard for you to do to be vulnerable like that? I know often when you have written your books in the past, you kind of retreat to upstate New York and the Adirondacks to do some writing and kind of take yourself offline. Do you think that strategy helped you kind of, you know, be a little bit more open without trolls like every day, you know, even if it's not about exactly what you're writing about, but does that help? Yeah, yeah. For the past three years, you know, this book has taken over three years to write, and I've gotten the majority of it done in the summer when I can step away from the other job that I have at Homestretch Foundation. So when I get to sit down in front of a computer for two months, you know, July and August, it um, it really helped me get in touch with not just the vulnerability, but the importance of making that decision. Like, yeah, okay, this is the right way to go. It. Um, it, yeah, it helps to turn off social media for a little while. I've since adapted that. I'm like, oh, this feels really good to step away from that online, you know, platform all the time. So, yes, that was a big part of the of the journey for sure. I know you said so, only, you know, few, Haley and, oh, oh, sorry. I was going to ask. I know you said only a few people have, have read this so far, but... I'm curious, even it's one thing to have this vulnerability and being worried about internet trolls like strangers, but what about these personal stories of people that 
are, are you you might consider friends or you know are very you know them very well and they know you very well is that hard I actually I would say that I'm I'm more comfortable with um with my friends and those who knew the journey as it was unfolding for all of those years and they knew what was happening behind the scenes um so I'm okay with that and I realized that there might be some people in my circles of uh, circles of friendship, you know, those we hold very close to us and those who might be in the bleacher seats, so to speak, you know, there are a lot of realms to to um, to friendship. And uh, I do run the risk, you know, maybe some of them won't connect with this or might have harsh words. I hope not. But it it's always a possibility, you know. Um, but I have I keep going back to the one thing that really helped me uh take this chance and write this book is the fact that in 2016, Bicycling Magazine um, did a, a piece on, they did a profile on me wanting to know this question of, you know, what does happen when you stand up and fight for change? And, um, you know, largely about the journey of fighting for women's equity at the Tour de France. And they, the cycling world already knew a little bit about that journey. Um, but for cycling, for Bicycling Magazine to say, well, can you take us a little bit deeper into what really happens? And I made that decision. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to experiment and tell them, you know, some of this vulnerability um, and put that out there. I'm going to talk about the element of, of depression. You know, I'm going to talk about the dark demons of mental health and the stuff that was going on behind the scenes in my personal life. Um, and it was a real risk. It was really scary because obviously the readership of Bicycling Magazine um, goes far beyond, you know, just a few friends that I know or have this is now going out into the world and to the public. I was so blown away by the total strangers that reached out to me either on social media or even emails through my website. Um, total strangers that said, um, thank you for sharing the you know, kind of the dark side of what you went through. Now I don't feel so alone. Now I feel like I can relate to, um, to you and to your journey. So that really took a huge weight off my shoulders. And, and it was a huge impetus for me to start this book, which is really, um, you know, I, it's like a 400 page article <laughs> on, um, on what bicycling magazine kicked off back in 2016. So, um, I think that that was something that was very empowering to me was kind of this, let's test the waters and see, see how this works. And Catherine, you're, you know, the book has so many stories of like grit and perseverance. It would inspire anyone. And it also will let people know like how hard you have been working and how hard it was to do all that work. And when I'm reading these like nitty gritty details of the work and your passion and the investments and the back and forth, a lot of the stories actually deal with pretty high up there folks and companies and, you know, executives and people with like deep pockets and the the people that ultimately you're like, okay, to make change like this, that's who we would want to reach, right? And so yet you're reading this book and you're like, but it's not happening, right? So I, I guess I got the feeling that you almost intended the book to be, you know, telling your story as the memoir piece, but also maybe like trying to get to people in the trenches to rally like the more grassroots support and to keep that going. Would you say that's correct? I would. I would. And I'd expand, too, to say that um, 
and, and I'm hopeful that this comes across, please tell me if it doesn't or if it does, but I want people to know that we, the collective we of those of us who are not famous or wealthy or politicians or Olympic gold medalists or, you know, Instagram influencers, you know, that the rest of us, we regular people also have the ability to create change. And that's really the message that I hope carries forth where, yes, although there are so many struggles and hurdles like we talk about, um, that if I was able to create change, you know, being um, a cyclist in her mid to late 30s in Tucson, if I were able to affect change at the Tour de France in in Paris, you know, if I can do that, then anyone else can do that too. Um, and one of the big takeaways is the fact that I didn't do it alone. You know, you'll, you know, from reading it, that teamwork was the essential part of this, you know, and I, I was able to align with some huge names in our sports of triathlon and cycling. So Chrissy Wellington, Marianne Vos, Emma Pooley, back in um, 2012, 2013, when we were making the film Half the Road, and I was interviewing people, you know, I had access to these star power figures in sport. And I certainly didn't have the Palmares that they did in terms of, you know, their Olympic and world championship levels. But what I did have was the ability to organize and, you know, set out a game plan. Here's what we're going to do. I could use my writing background to make sure that we were on track to, you know, create the, the proper medium to affect change. And, and if I can do that, then I think it shows that everybody can use their specific strengths to band together and create change in some way. So um, that's, that's the big part. And I, I also talk about this, and I think you read this earlier on in the book, that when I first started um, you know, poking and prodding um, ASO, which is the parent company of the Tour de France, it, <laughs> they weren't responding to my emails from like, who, who is this chick? Who's this person? You know, and I totally got ignored. They did not pay attention to me until we were a team effort, you know, and again, um, they, that all has to do with the, the fact that we banded together and everybody plays a certain role. So they were all the, the superstars, but look, someone's got to drive the bus. So I was an awesome bus driver, but they got to be the superstars. And that made me really happy. <laughs> but building that team, it seems like it was kind of a bumpy road. I mean, you were kind of driving that bus solo for a while because, you you kind of come up with this dilemma through it kind of weaves in and out throughout the whole story with like the media and sponsors and so the media is saying you know show us the sponsors and the sponsors are saying we'll come on board if you have media attention and so this is a common dilemma uh you know for anyone for triathletes because sponsors might want results and they want you to have x number of social media followers and then to get the social media followers you need the results or you need to you know you need time to train and get the results that kind of thing so do you have any advice for how we approach this kind of dilemma. I definitely understand that that is a, a big chicken and egg cycle, you know, and one of the things that I try to prove and show in the book is that change always has to come from the top down. You know, uh, we need to be valued equally from the top down. But in terms of getting to that point, when you're not yet at the top, I think one of the best things that people need to remember is 
um, you know, it's a very basic piece of advice, but it's start where you are. And what I mean by that is if you're new, if we're talking about um, athlete sponsorship, right, and you're new to the elite level or even the professional level of uh, cycling or triathlon or any other sport, um, I would start, and I even did this in my own career, you start with the, uh, the local sponsorships, the ones who know you as a person you know, start there before you start, you know, shooting for the big names of the huge companies. Um, you know, that's, you have to build up from there, get people who know you and trust you and understand that you're, you're, you are where you are at the start of your journey. And uh, it's really easy to get discouraged if we reach out to these huge, huge companies and say, hey, look at me, look at me. They are going to want to say, well, what, what are you doing and what have you done? And we know that this is very true too. Anybody who is um, doing well and pulling in those ranks and those results, yeah, of course, more sponsors are going to pay attention to how we do as we progress through a sport. So I think it's important to be like, okay, I can get there. I will get there. And let me shoot for what I can at this stage and know that I can build it from there. Um, you know, and I think that that's, that's something that's just important for us to remember so that we don't get discouraged along the way and, you know, uh, put in the work and the results will come, but it's, it's not easy. (laughs) Catherine, you say that the first lesson of activism is, and I'm giving a, a small quote from the book, silence isn't quiet. It's deafening. To be an activist is to seek answers, to let silence and pauses not deter us, but guide us towards our path. And you have a lot of stories in there about women who shout their support from the rooftops or at least their social media. And then also some who quietly support and would like come up to you and say like, hey, I'm on your side, you know, but like not in the public eye. And I think we can all kind of relate to a situation where we're caught up. Like, is this something where I speak up or do I, you know, not shout it from the rooftop? So what would you tell people facing that situation to maybe encourage them to gather some courage and speak up? Oh, that's such a great question. I realized that we all have different personalities and we have different comfort levels with how much we want to put ourselves out there. And um, I completely understand that a lot of people are not going to want to step into the role that I did of, you know, being out there front and center, um, coordinating with all the, you know, the high level athletes or the high level sponsors. And if that's not your cup of tea, that's totally okay. You can still embrace change and activism on the level where you feel most comfortable. Some of the most um, the most wonderful ways people can do that is by, by sharing the journey. And so what I mean by that is talk about it with friends and with your circles of who you interact with. I know that in this current time during the pandemic, we're not all sitting down having, uh, you know, lunch together. <laughs> Those days hopefully will return. But but we still have social media and we still have email. So for people who are not comfortable sharing um, on social media, you know, this is a great time to email people in your contact and group and start that buzz of like, hey, have you heard of this, uh, this person, this platform, this book, whatever it might be that they're passionate about where they want to see uh, change affected, you know, and we can take those those small steps. Do you think that... You know, the last year has been crazy for a lot of reasons, obviously, but the conversation around allyship and becoming an ally has been one that's huge, you know, on a lot of different levels for conversations going on in the world right now. And do you think 
the focus around that has will kind of help causes like this going forward too. Like, do you think, are you actually seeing, you know, maybe a, an increase in people willing to take a stand? Yes. Yes. I can say that emphatically. Um, when I first started on this uh, campaign, which mostly at that point really revolved around um, cycling in the Tour de France, you know, in 2012-ish. Um, at that point, I was one of the very few people that would speak publicly about anything that was um, was amiss in our sport. Uh, there was this common thought that, oh, well, if we speak negatively about anything, then we'll lose sponsors or we'll lose our audience. Um, when, in fact, the opposite is true. You know, if we want to move anything forward in this world, it makes sense to call out the flaws, but also always provide an opportunity for improvement or solutions on how we can make these changes. Otherwise, it's just complaining, you know. So, um, but a lot of people, especially in this day and age, they are responding, um, you know, to to the authenticity element. So they want to know if something is broken with the system, what is that? And what can we do to fix that? You know, and we see that it was so true for me with cycling because so many people love this sport that when they saw that there was something wrong with it, they didn't all of a sudden say, oh, I'm never watching cycling again. In fact, they were drawn to what can we do to make this better? What can we do to fix this? And hopefully by now, your listeners will know that cycling is a metaphor. You know, we can use that for any area of, of change that we want to see. So, um, you know, for me now, I, when I gave you the big yes, change is, you know, I, I do see things happening. Where we are today, eight-ish years later, I now see so many more athletes that are speaking up about the problems, about the inequity. I see more groups that are forming to do something about that as well. Um, and I also see more journalists in tune with this. You know, they're the ones who are also kind of supporting that effort by highlighting the, the problems and the solutions. So that is a really good sign to me. And I am also noticing that um, the women in the sport who do take that chance to speak up and speak out, um, they gain more followers, they gain more fans because they're being their authentic self. And, and I think people would rather hear that than the same old like smile and wave at the camera and everything's great. You know, people, people want to be part of someone's true authentic journey. And it's my hope that for those of us that delve into the realms of activism, that that's actually seen as a very powerful tool, you know, that, um, that calling things out will draw the right people to the cause. Catherine, you're also not afraid to name names. And you even coined mm -hmm. a term in this book called sister blocking, which is a verb it means to stop other women from rising. So can you tell, and you tell stories <laughs> about this and it's not like, again, you're naming these names and they're not always the higher ups, the people with the deep pockets. Sometimes they are the people closest to you. So what was that mm -hmm. process like of just coming to terms and coming up with this term and, and, and even just saying like, Hey, this is who is wrong. Yeah. I, l let me start with the, um, with the fact that, and I, I do put this in the very, very front of the book, I mentioned that everybody in this book is real. There are a few times where I do use a pseudonym, um, 
part of that is protective for me because the last thing I need are people coming after me. <laughs> you know, this is America. We like our lawsuits, right? So I wanted to avoid that type of thing. And other times um, I also realized that in this modern day and age, even if I don't name everybody, uh, it's so easy to find out who people are. It's, it's the age of the internet. And since my story is you know, very much nonfiction. If, if people really want to track somebody down, they can do it. As for, you know, who worked here, when and where, it's, it's all out there, right? But I, I felt that um, rather, in some cases, but not all, rather than using a pseudonym could be effective for both ways, keeping the person focused on the story rather than the individual. So, okay, that's the first part of your question. <laughs> but sister blocking, yeah. So um, I came up with this term because you know, in my naivete, and keep in mind at this point, I was what, like 35 years old, and I was like, well, I'm a full grown adult. And, and I didn't realize how also naive I was <laughs> to so many things. And, and I'm sure I still am now and that my 55 year old self will look back in 10 years and be like, you didn't know what you were talking about at 45. So that said, <laughs> um, I did notice that as I was, um, calling this change for effect and women's empowerment and equality, I naturally made this assumption that um, all the women would be on board with the mission. I wasn't quite so naive to think, oh, they're all going to be my best friends and they're going to like me. I had just a thick enough skin that, okay, maybe they don't need to like me, but at least they're going to like the, where we're going, that we're going to fight for, for equity, right? So, but I was wrong. Um, there were two examples. One was um, the fact that I had a team manager on my 2013 pro cycling team um, who simply just did not like me very much as a person, but then also tried to block me from doing what I was doing in terms of speaking out for um, equality in cycling uh, to the point where I was benched for the whole year. I raced once with the team and then I was benched. Um, that was devastating personally, professionally, all of it. But I was benched because um, she had warned me. She said, stop talking about this equality stuff. Uh, you know, you're a nothing. You're a no one. It's, no one's going to listen to you. And that was painful on many levels. But just to think that I was then actually benched from a, from a career that year was really difficult. So um, another example being that I worked for ESPN at the time. I was a senior editor with ESPNW. And, um, you know, our senior editor-in-chief, um, you know, uh, let me put this in a, you know, in a, in a quick way. Um, it's one thing to not like, uh, say, all the many pitches that, you know, I might have brought to the table. Like, oh, let's write about this. Let's write about that. Let's do this. It's totally normal in journalism to be like, nope, that one's not going to work for us or this one isn't. But um, it got to the point where it was interesting to see what type of content was being blocked from, from ESPN. You know, back in the day, and this is, when I say back in the day, we're talking, you know, 2012, 2011, that's not that long ago. But they were not running certain articles um, because it, uh, you know, there were difficult articles out there that we could have, have put out there, but they wanted to maintain more of that cheery sunshine image about, you know, only the positive things in, in women's sports. And um, that never sat well with me. I'm like, well, are we, we need to be real too, right? Um, but the other part being that this, you know, this boss that I had 
absolutely did not at all think that there should be a documentary on women's pro cycling. And, you know, when I pitched it, it got so shut down, you know, um, which was very, very interesting. And I'll, I'll let the book go more into that journey. But, um, you know, again, it comes down to there was an element where I felt that um, it's not so much that these these women didn't like who I was as a person. I can take that if I have to. But it's like they were actually standing in my way of what I was able to do or achieve. And so I, I had to find a way to term that, you know. And so I came up with sister blocking, you know, because uh, you got you to gotta infuse a little bit of humor in these situations. Otherwise, you're just going to go just absolutely nuts. So, um, you know, I, I hope that that term will, um, will become known, but I also hope it will stop. <laughs> but we really need to check in and do a better job of um, making sure that we support other women. Um, and even if we might find their personality a little bit not to our personal liking, okay, that's okay, but don't stand in the way of other women who are doing what they're doing, especially especially when it comes to the good of moving women forward. You know, we need to be on board with at least that. I love it. And I think people can like hit the rewind button for the last minute and then listen to that again because let it all sink in and really kind of carry that with us all. Um, as you said, a big part of your background is was as a journalist for ESPN and then ESPNW. And at one point, ESPNW was the team sponsor for the cycling team. And you describe a story about wanting to brand the jerseys with ESPNW. And, you know, if you're familiar kind of with the ESPNW logo, it's the lowercase ESPN with the uppercase W, and you were pushing for it all uppercase ESPNW. Why would something, you know, subtle like that be important in the long haul for equality and like yeah I guess can you can you tell us more about kind of how how that went down <laughs> I love that you cite that example it's true there are so many things in um, everyday life where we don't even realize that in some way women are considered less than men you know, and, and many of us who are very progressive be like, well, I don't feel that way, so clearly it's not that way. But if you look around, society still has so many hints that, oh, but it is that way, and we need to fix these areas. So, you know, I, I brought it to their attention that um, it, it would be a lot better if ESPNW were in the exact same bold typeface as ESPN. I even went so far as to say, we really don't need ESPNW. It it should all be inclusive. ESPN should run equal articles on women as they do men. There's enough content out there for both for, for both to exist under the same banner. Um, but specifically, bringing back to the the lowercase point of ESPNW, if you think about it, um, you know the the rationality was oh well the lowercase looks just it looks feminine it looks you know more ladylike. And, you know, we got to pause and think about that and be like, really? <laughs> really? Are we, we're talking about font, you know, it, it happened a, a few different times, you know, but let's, let's think about how those small images actually can play such a big role when they shape our unconscious thought that, you know, we are smaller, we are less than what we would envision, um, 
you know, in, in a man's world, and why can't we exist in both, right? So that was, yeah, it, it eventually ESPN did um, go with the uppercase. Uh, I don't know if it's used in every single logo now, but that one, it, um, the way that we started out was definitely such a visible difference. And making these small changes, it, it's not about ESPN, it's not about sports, it's about something an organization that is very, very noticeable, very front and center. And if that's how one company does it, then another company's gonna do it too, you know, and we can disrupt that change by calling it out and being like, hey, let's let's be the ones who create the change so that these visuals don't exist. And not everybody gets that <laughs> as I experienced, but we can at least put our voice out there and, and you know, keep poking the bear. I think you tell a similar story with regards to this book cover, you posted on your Instagram page, record this book cover versus the book cover of your previous books. Yes. <laughs> um, the font issue, you know, actually, that's probably what urged me to speak up about ESPNW too. <laughs> but yeah, my very first book came out in all um, all lowercase lettering for, for the title, kind of like the E.E. E. Cummings style. Um, and it had a pink feather boa on the cover. And mind you, I, this was with a corporate publisher. Um, I really did not have much say in the art department of how this was going to go. Um, so, you know, it was kind of soft and pink and gray. Um, beautiful in some ways, but also a little bit, you know, um, kind of <laughs> made me feel that it didn't encapsulate the journey of the book um, at all. But I didn't have much say, so okay. So I was like, all right. And then the second book with with ESPN, um, you know, it was I was on the cover, uh, posing with all this sports equipment. I was in um, shorts and a sports bra, you know, bearing the midriff and totally made up face. On one hand, I do find it's empowering if that's what you know a woman feels comfortable in and wants to wear. I I didn't have a, so much of a problem with that, but I definitely had the issue that it's like okay, they're kind of doing this on purpose, like put a, you know, um, less than fully clothed person on the cover. And then they did the, uh, the cover in red and yellow, citing that these are two very uh, uh, um, consumer attracting colors, you know. Um, I'm like, oh, okay. And then the third book cover was um, a picture of me, like hair down, makeup on, I'm with a bike and, and, kind of a glamour type shot, you know, smiling, you know, and the publisher of that book was like, well, you know, smiling women, it's, it sells books. <sighs> so those are all corporate sponsored publishing things. On one hand, I'm very thankful for those, those books because, um, with corporate publishing, you do have a bigger reach in terms of the, the, um, the publicity element of it. And um, reviewers will pay more attention to you. New York Times will pay more attention to you. But for this book, for Stand, uh, and as you know, I published this one independently. And I now got to sit in the driver's seat of, of the cover. And so I did three things to, um, to kind of take ownership where the three books uh, didn't use my voice. I got to use mine. So um, Stand is in all caps. Uh, it's also vertical on the spine rather than horizontal because this book will stand up and stand out. 
and the um, on the cover uh, you can see my forearms are holding up an equal sign you know so I'm my face is not on this um, and you know I, I kind of felt like let let all of the forearms that fight for equality be the sexiest part of a human being right so and then what was the other part oh yeah so the, this cover is in blue and that is my way of saying look women have just as much right to own blue as men do pink and you know there's no pink feather boa on this cover you know it would be blue and it would be what i i was going for was i want this cover to be appreciated and be gender neutral i want a man to look at this book and a woman and all of the non-binary you know people out there to look at this and be like hey okay this might be interesting rather than have it immediately be labeled a chick book or a dude's book. You know, I wanted it to hopefully cross that divide. Thank you for letting me talk about that because um, that's it's it's not like that's really in print anywhere in the book. So this is our kind of our secret behind the scenes club. <laughs> we love the behind the scenes um, being part of the behind the scenes club. And but during the book, you tell a story where you're gearing up for this cycling race and the team director says that someone from your team is going to have have to essentially sacrifice themselves for the good of the team. And so the idea here was you would, someone would, I'm going, I'm giving away, spoiler alert, it's you, <laughs> will have to ride away early and kind of make a breakaway that you know you can't hang on to, that it is totally for publicity and PR and get the announcers to talk about the team and everything like that. So you, you did volunteer. You wasn't, you weren't forced to, but you volunteered happily you called yourself the sacrificial lamb. Did you enjoy that process and take it as like a point of pride? Or were you like, oh man, I wish I would have been able to finish that race really strong, even if it wasn't, you know, I didn't get that airtime. Oh, that one I took as a point of pride uh, for a couple different reasons. You know, I I was in the role of being a domestique on the team. And in cycling, that means you're the one who is working for the leader. So if it's, you know, if it's a hilly race, then a climber on the team is going to be the leader. If it's a flat race, then a sprinter is going to be the leader. And the domestiques, we're the ones who get to be the, um, I guess you could say we can, we're always the sacrificial lamb, you know, in terms of the ones who are protect, protecting that leader, going out, um, chasing down those who escape or going on solo breakaways to see if anything sticks. These are very exhausting roles. So on one hand, I was um, already aware that that's what the, the role would entail. Uh, and second, this was at the Philadelphia Classic. Oh, such a great race. And it has this, um, this big wall, the Maniunk Wall. It's got a big hill. It's a multi-lap race. So it's got a huge hill, and it's also got a sprint finish. So I knew that the the leader on our team would have to be both the best climber and the best sprinter to stand a chance in that race. And I knew, I'm like, okay, well, I'm more of a time trialist and this course doesn't suit me to stand on the podium, but it certainly would suit me to go out and give it my all on a breakaway and put together, you know, that, uh, that, that time trial usage. So um, I I love that role. And I knew it was, um, I'd have to swallow my pride because when you do go on such a breakaway to the point where you're out there for so long that you absolutely blow up, the chances are you're, you might not even finish the race. 
and that is what happened that day. Um, but uh, I loved it. I really, I loved it. You know, there were plenty of other days and other races where I got to um, to showcase my strengths and stand on the podium. But that one for me was um, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> So the last story we're going to give a little intel on before we're telling everyone, there's a lot more stories in this book. So you got to go get it for yourself. But you have a great one about you were at a charity ride in Tucson. I think you see Patrick Dempsey and you kind of just like beeline for, um, you know, pull your pocket video recorder out and start asking him about you know, if he's willing to kind of talk about the need for equity in women's cycling and he answers in a really big way and he gives you these great like sound bites and it's him, right? Like everyone would love to see Patrick Dempsey saying these things. So it was like hook, line and sinker, you nailed it. And you know in this whole story that like when men, you know, not just Patrick Dempsey, but any man stands up for women, we all move forward faster. And Catherine, we have a mailbag on this podcast. So we have listeners who write into the mailbag and we recently got a mailbag question come in from a male listener and we'd love you to take a stab at answering this for us if you want. Um, David asks that he wanted to ask what an average guy athlete can do besides listening and supporting the podcast to help further equality for women in sport. And so, I mean, I know that's like a, a really broad question, right? But what would be your, you know, top points to tell David and any of our other male listeners? Yay, yay, David, and yay, male listeners. Um, let me start by saying that none of these projects that I've been involved with in terms of, of activism and fighting for women's rights, none of these would have happened without awesome, strong men by our side making this happen. I'm going to give you an example. When we were making the film Half the Road, which is the documentary on women's cycling, the one that ESPN turned down but then I struck out on my own to make this film, right? But I didn't do it alone. I needed to go and crowdsource uh, for this film to happen. And we, we reached our full budget. We got our budget. But what I love sharing with people is that over 600, um, 600 people donated to Half the Road. And it was an equal split between men and women. And to me, that means something huge because it was proving that fans of cycling and fans of equality, they were equally men and women and they wanted to see this movie happen, right? So I love pointing that out to guys that, that um, they are equally part of this journey. Um, and one of the most supportive things that, uh, that men can do. So first of all, I, yes, I just mentioned, like, if you are passionate about a certain area of life and there are people who are fighting for change and they are proven to be, um, you know, a trustworthy site, then donate to these, to these places. Some people are more comfortable, um, supporting with their wallets than they are with their voices. And honestly, both help equally, right? So that's one option, um, and I always say, make sure that you you do some research on who you're investing in. I do that for for you know both of elements of protection for the person and for the donor. Um, also, you know, a, one of the things that I love to tell men, I, I will often have uh, guys reach out to me that will say things like, "Oh, I I am going to tell my daughters all about what you're doing," and I will say, "Do you have sons?" And if they say yes, I say, "Please, please, please." 
let them know what we're working on because that is where so much change will um, will happen in the future. You know, when this next generation is brought up, um, you know, understanding how much we still have to fight for for gender equity. So that's one area where guys can be helpful. Is you know, let the other guys around you. And if you don't have sons, uh, your your best friends and the people, you know, your family members, people in your life, point out verbally, point out like, hey. Have you heard of what this group or this person or this mission is doing? Check this out. You know, um, that's that's a huge element, a great way to spread awareness. Um, and also, again, if you're comfortable on social media, share that stuff. And if you're comfortable saying, hey, I support this person who's with me. You know, these are small steps, but also very important steps. Um, and I'm seeing that. I, I see a lot more of that happen than I did uh, seven, eight years ago. So, you know, yay, guys. <laughs> oh, I know. Can we talk about another guy that's a little bit related to the triathlon world here? <laughs> Torsten. Yes. I, I used to bring up Torsten. Yes. <laughs> I read your acknowledgments. I, I thought that was pretty cool to see his name in there. Torsten Rad, our great friend from dot. Com? Yeah, yep, org. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the awesome Thorsten Torsten. I love him. He's been so helpful. So he he and I crossed paths years ago when I actually needed some data from what he does. You know, he collects data on triathlon races and events. And I actually needed to ask his um uh his expertise on a triathlon. And so we stayed in touch and he had uh, reached out to me when he knew that I was working on this book um, and was helping me with a variety of things that have to do with the independent publishing side of things because he has also put out his own book. And what he has done to make Stand happen is that I, I hired him to as my quote-unquote tech guru. So Torsten knows how to put an actual book into layout form. You know, believe it or not, like fairies and elves don't make books. I thought they did. I was wrong. But actually humans have to put a book into their proper formatting for it to be sewn together, glued together into a book. And Torsten knew how to do that from his previous publishing experience. And um, so I, I asked if he would join forces. He said yes. And he has been such an integral part of making Stand happen in a very, very literal way. He is a huge reason why we have a tangible book <laughs> and also why we have an ebook. That's another area I had no idea how to upload digital content. You know, I can barely upload a Word doc to an email. So luckily, Torsten came to the rescue and, and worked to make this happen. Um, so uh, just one more example of awesome men who are like, I believe in what you're doing. This is great. I want to be part of it. And I'm so very, very thankful. I love that story. Um, Catherine, we are recording this interview uh, about a week before Stan's official release on February 1st. And Alyssa and I have been able to read the first half of the book. And we know that there is so much more that will be in the full story, which includes you actually creating and racing La Course by Tour or La Course. I'm mm-hmm. my French. <laughs> La. Um, by the Tour. La. And the, it's a one day event for women at the Tour de France, which started in 2014. But I am curious, just like, you know, in the last couple of minutes we have here, in the context of equality in women's cycling, like, where are we now? Okay, great question. One thing that I always want to remind people is that. Uh, La Course is still ongoing, and 
And we need to celebrate that achievement, even though it definitely needs to be more days. And I talk about this in the book that ASO did not keep their promise in terms of growing that into a multi-day stage race, which they said they would. So we're still fighting for change there. But what is so incredibly vital about La Course by Tour de France, which is the full name of that race, is that we actually are part of the Tour de France. Um, and back in the 80s, when they did have a women's race, they and they kicked the women out of the race, they also took the naming rights with them. And when the women tried to say, well, we'll start our own women's Tour de France, Tour de France said, no, you won't. That's our name. And that we now have ownership of that name back. You know, we have La Course by Tour de France. So that still remains a huge victory. And um, it's something that we have to keep pushing for change. And the more people who call out that it's ridiculous that ASO has not kept their promise, um, the more close we are to seeing that result of change happen. And I, I love that there are more voices calling for change. Catherine, we've taken a lot of your time, but we do have one more question for you because this book has um, an interactive reader's guide that goes along with it. So people can get the hard copy that Torsten helped make happen. And then it seems like we will be able to kind of go online and kind of do like the, the um, you know, workshop part of it, I guess, and the manual aspect of it to work through some things. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, so... At the end of the book, there is an actual manual in the book, which I put at the back because it makes a lot more sense after you read the journey, you know, and then you can leave with this list of, okay, these, these will help me and I understand now how they reference to the book. But I, the interactive reader guide was important to me because I bring up a lot of topics in the book, like the history of women's cycling. Now that in in and of itself is its own book, <laughs> right? So I, I wanted readers who were curious to have a way to access that. So I put in a link. Now for those who, who read it on ebook, that link will be clickable right there. And then for those reading the hardcover book, um, the interactive reader guide there will be on my website and everywhere where they read it in the print books, um, there's a reference to where to find it online. You know. Because for me, it just seemed like such an important thing. I know when I read, I'm very curious. And if there's something that I want to see more of, I want a way to access that, especially if it's longer than a footnote, right? <laughs> um, so that's the interactive reader guide. And we also have a photo insert in there, which we wanted to make sure was available online because, um, yeah, photo quality is always better when you get to see it, you know, in color too. So I wanted people to feel feel part of, of the journey. And for me, that was a way to to do it where readers could actually feel that they are interacting with the story. And Catherine, where can our listeners get the book? I, I you know, one last question. Sorry, I saw okay, this one yes. here. Where do we get the book? What's the best way to get the book? Where can we, I mean, if you want to watch the documentary, Half the Road, if you want to support Women's Cycling Through the Homestretch Foundation, where do we find more of you? Oh, oh my goodness. Thank you for this, this, this great question, which I always feel weird of being like, you can find more of me here. Um, look, I'm on social media at, uh, you know, at Catherine Bertine. I think there's a hyphen in there on Instagram, no hyphen on Facebook. Anyway, you can find me. I also have CatherineBertine.com and you can hop on my mailing list, which is very sparingly. I don't spam people, but you'll just get an update if something interesting is coming out. Um, but Half the Road, the film we talked about, that is available on many platforms. It's on iTunes, 
Amazon Prime has it. Also, for our international listeners, Vimeo, V-I-M-E-O.com is a great way to see it internationally. There is an area where I can use help. Because this film is now, you know, gosh, uh, seven years old, um, you know, I, I could use some extra reviews from, from today where people are like, hey, yeah, okay. Because <laughs> what I noticed that's funny is that some people will view this film and be like, huh, well, it's, it's old. Like, there aren't any drones. It doesn't have advanced footage. You know, I'm like, oh, my God, give me a break, you know. <laughs> so I could always use a little bit of extra support. Um, but for the book itself, you can find Stand um, in, I say, three, three to four places. One is it's on Amazon in all forms, a hardcover, paperback, and ebook. If you're not an Amazon fan, I hear you. It's okay. You can find it at barnesandnoble.com. Or if you've got a local bookstore in your town, you can order the hard copy from any independent bookstore. So if you want to support your, your local place, please do that. Um, and then for my international friends, it is available on your Amazon. So as you probably know, Amazon.com goes to the US version of Amazon, but you've got to go to your Amazon browser in whatever country you live in. Um, and it will pop up there. Just put in stand, Catherine Bertine, it'll, it'll pop up. Um, so though that's, I guess that's where you can find me. <laughs> Wait, I have one um, other thing. Wait, when you're yeah. leaving like a video review, how, I've never done this before, but I do, I'm trying, one of my new year's resolutions is to leave more reviews for like podcasts, for books. And I guess for videos as well, how do you leave a video review? Is it like, on iTunes, there's a way to do yeah. it? Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. I'm learning this too. So iTunes, you you can do it through iTunes and you can do it through Amazon. I have, or Half the Road has good reviews on those platforms. For some reason, people who logged into Rotten Tomatoes, they threw a few tomatoes for the reasons I was telling you about. Like, this movie is old. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I've got like four or five stars on Amazon and iTunes and then Rotten Tomatoes gets in there. Um, and so you can go to RottenTomatoes.com and you can, you know. I want to log into like I Titanic. Know. I'm going to log into Titanic and be like, this movie is old. It's old. <laughs> Leonardo does not look like that anymore. Yeah. Exactly. I'm angry. Tomato. No, that's so good to know. We are going to go with, give yeah. you some like very fresh tomatoes on half the road for sure. But thank you so much, Catherine. Thank, thank you, thank you yeah, for joining us. Tomatoes. <laughs> oh, thank you. And thank you for the humor. Cause you know, at the end of the day, um, you have to laugh when you're an activist and when you're fighting for anything, whether it's ridiculous reviews on Rotten Tomatoes or it's women's equality throughout the world, you're going to run into so many silly, absurd, out of date things that if you don't laugh, you will crack. Trust me, I know. So find the laughter. That's, uh, that's where the magic is. Haley, I've been doing some research on winter adventures and hiking, and guess what one of the most important gear pieces is for winter hiking? Hmm, a really warm coat, snowshoes, an ice axe? Okay, well, maybe those, but also sunscreen. It's not just a summer product, and that is why my Zelios Sun Barrier is still at the top of my pack. 
Thanks for the tip, Alyssa. If any of our listeners want to top off their hiking packs with Zilio's Sun Barrier or their gym bags with Zilio's Race Relief Recovery Gel, Swim and Sport Shower Products, or Betwixt Anti-Chafe Chammy Cream, use code IRONWOMEN for 20% off at teamzilios.com. The Iron Women Podcast wants to give a huge shout out to Orca Sportswear for their continued support in 2021. As someone who isn't a natural born swimmer, my choices for swim gear are super important. Orca has me ready to battle for every second I need in the water with the open water, triathlon, and swim run wetsuits. They also have safety buoys, goggles, cold water caps, and booties. You name it, they have it. The code IRONWOMEN15 will get you 15% off, so head to orca.com today and let's get ready to swim in 2021. Haley, I love it when we have mailbag questions that tie in perfectly with the guests that we're chatting with that week. That did work out nicely this week. And I loved how Catherine answered David's question about, you know, how men can help support women. And I loved her answer of, you know, showing strong women to our daughters and also our sons or or even just young people that we know, you know, making sure that boys see women as you know, powerful and capable humans and equal humans. But then um, if I had to add in something of my own, I would say, you know, something I try to do and I think a lot of us try to do, but, you know, we can be a little bit more deliberate about is like voting with our dollars, buying from women-owned companies or companies that go out of their way to support women. You know, we I think about the, the sponsors of our podcast. Like they sought us out. They want to partner with us. And so um, if I am looking for something in that that line of product, I I will opt for that kind of a company. I love those ideas. And Haley, I think that's a good segue to remind people too, to on the podcast app that they're listening to us. It helps so much if you can leave a rating and review and it helps us with our podcast. It will also help other women in sport if you leave reviews on their books, their movies, um, all of the above. Like I know Catherine's documentary, Half the Road, which came out, um, you know, a few years ago, like it, it actually helps to get current reviews and uh, keep that going and that momentum on on that sort of thing. So that's just a big thing you can do, um, you know, for forwarding the progress of women and like all of the little things that we're doing out there in sport. Um, but it, it really does help as small as those things might seem. The algorithms are strong. Likes on Instagram, <laughs> comments, shares, all of the above. But um, I think those things don't necessarily cost anything. They cost time, but I think that they do add up. But great. Again, thank you to David for that question. And and definitely something we are always trying to work on as well. So appreciate his his insightful question. All right, Haley. Well, I don't have a week of marathon training ahead of me, so I'm thinking I might continue to get a little bit more rested here through the weeks. My brain will start firing on all cylinders again. But, um, you know, it was it was fun while it lasted. And I'm sure that things will be happening soon in 2021. 
Yes, and that speed won't go away. You're gonna it'll come into good use in triathlon season. Whenever that does happen, I bet you're gonna find this new gear from that marathon training. So it doesn't just go away. It'll still be worth it. But good things will happen. But Alyssa, congrats again on your adventure race. Recover well and I will talk to you next week. Bye, Haley. You have been listening to the Iron Women podcast hosted by Haley Chura and Alyssa Gadeski. Iron Women is a production of Live Feisty Media and is edited by Lindsay Glassford. Thank you to our sponsors, Noon Hydration, Prevenix, Zelio Skincare, Form Swim Goggles, and Orca Sportswear. You can find all websites and discount codes in our show notes at ironwomenpodcast.com.